Hello and welcome to another episode of the View from the Lab podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to Natalie Hewitt, who is the Greater Manchester Science Partnership Lead and a current Head of Science at Hawkley Hall High School in Wigan, and Sarah Longshaw from the STEM Learning Partnership. They're both experienced science teachers who have done a great deal of work on making science practicals purposeful for pupils, both in the schools they've worked in and the regions they've supported. We cover all aspects of practical science during the podcast, delving into what makes a good practical and how we can encourage students to see the activities as integral to their understanding of science. Make sure you listen carefully as Sarah and Natalie divulge some great advice and also signpost you to some excellent practical resources. Just to get started off, can I start with you, Sarah? Could you just give us a, a brief bio of your, your life in science education so far? Okay, so I didn't uh, set out to be a science teacher. I, um, I started off um, doing medicine uh, and then switched to do biochemistry, ended up in public relations for a while before retraining as a science teacher. Um, I then uh, had a bit of a break where I did various part-time and temporary jobs whilst I had two children. And um, when I moved to Cheshire, I started um, at a local school and then worked my way up um, swapping schools to become a head of chemistry, head of science, uh, left that role about four or five years ago to run the science learning partnership and take on the other associated roles. But in between that, I've also dipped back into some part time teaching as well. So uh, a bit of a varied path to where I am now. OK, well, lots, lots of good, relevant experience for us to, to talk about today. That's really good. Um, and Natalie, what's your experience of the science education world so far? Um, so I started out um, at a new secondary school in Manchester, um, very close to the city centre. Um, started there as an NQT in the year that the school opened up and then um, worked my way up there really, gaining promotions there to head of science um, as the school filled. And then I started leading the science learning partnership about four years ago now. Um, and then moved to my current school as head of science. Um, so I've been head of science now for about six years altogether um, and led the SLP for about four. So, yeah. So like a very busy person as well. So um, I would like to ask people about their kind of early experience of, of time in the classroom, because I think, it, you know, the first year or the first couple of years are the, are the ones that kind of stick out, certainly stuck out in my memory. Is there anything, Natalie, that you kind of remember about um, those first two years um, in terms of perhaps mistakes you made or, you know, challenges you've had <laughs> in those first two years. Um, any lessons or kind of months that kind of stuck out for you uh, as being significant at the beginning of your career? Um, so I think I think both Sarah and I had an interesting uh, start to our careers, possibly not your sort of um, average. I think mine was quite um, special, really, because it was that unique um, situation of a brand new school opening, it just being year seven, um, things were quite flexible. Um, the whole like ethos of the school was about doing things differently and making it work for that community. It was in quite a, a deprived area. Um, and we, we did things like there was no break time, no set lunch time. So we very quickly learned that students will go out to break when you send them out to break and then stay out at break for as long as they possibly can. So you'd end up with half a class. Um, we only had two labs and we taught 240 students at once. So figuring out how to best use the labs, we had different uh, length of practical rotors uh, and trial and error really was probably how I'd sum up my first couple of years of teaching. I was 
probably given a, a lot more uh, flexibility and opportunities to do things and learn from mistakes as well as you go like things weren't um perfect from from the get-go it was trial and error and realizing uh, what was working well and where you needed to adapt so you'd have lessons where one minute you'd thought you'd spent hours planning them for the whole year group and you thought they were amazing and then it came to the crunch and you'd deliver it and then you think oh that didn't work because the space um uh, it was all open plan so um like either the, it didn't lend itself to that space very well or there was the whole thing of independent learning and um you know it was around the era of 90 10 splits and things like that so um yeah, and I, I had to teach science, technology, maths, food tech. I did a bit of sports science. It was like you were doing all sorts, really. Um, sounds like sounds like you kind of um, you were like the the master teacher, like the uh, kind of uh, could teach could teach anything. I guess um, I guess, was it nice in a sense because my experience of schools is when you go into to a school, you know, year ten and year eleven hate you straight away, uh, whoever you are. Um, I guess it must have been nice to. St- take them from year seven in a sense because you know you're you're straight away you know that you're their teacher did that kind of help kind of the, the the kind of bonding between you and the students in those in that school yeah yeah definitely um and there was no one sort of older to model any any other behaviors other than the behaviors you wanted yeah um so it really was a, a clean start and um the students are very proud of the school they went to. Everything was, you know, super shiny. Everything was new. So they, they did look after things. Um, and, yeah, I think, um, well, I, I know even now, um, if, well, it, when we could go into Manchester, if you would see students who you'd taught, they'd always be, you know, they're always like, oh, miss, I'm doing this now, or... Or whatever. I got I got a text just before lockdown when football uh, was still going um, with supporters. Uh, I'd got a text off someone I used to work with saying, "Oh, I've just bumped into," and then it was an ex-student. Um, they want you to know they're at university now doing chemistry and blah blah. blah. So yeah, uh, and I think the type of community it was in as well. Um, you know, you it was a, you, you're not just a teacher when you work in those communities you know you've got to you've got to do things that maybe in in other areas where the challenges are different you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily have to do um so you know we've run and i'm sure like lots of people listening will have done the same as this but ran um you know extracurricular practical stuff where they bring in younger siblings and you're giving them food while they're there and things mm-hmm. like that um so yeah been lots lots going on so so same question you really Sarah what was your obviously you've dipped in and out of teaching so thinking back to when you um uh, maybe came from what I would call like a a normal job to to teaching um how did you how did you find that transition was it kind of a breath of fresh air in a sense because you would had enough of uh, office life or whatever you were doing um how, how were those first couple of years for you when you started out in teaching Okay, so I think I had an additional challenge and when I started teaching I had um, a four-month-old baby um, and uh, and also quite um, a, a tricky commute and I knew that if I didn't set off at a particular time and if the lights went red at particular points then I wasn't going to make it to the start of the day so that was uh, always interesting. Um, the other thing was that, uh, and you wouldn't get away with this now, I think in the past when 
my child minder let me down on occasions and I'd phone up and say, well, I can't come in. And they just said, bring the baby with you. So, you know, I have taught 9x3 on a Friday afternoon, you know, with a baby on my hip, um, which does limit somewhat what you can do in the classroom. But it does, again, build those relationships because, you know, your class is sharing something very special with you at that time. Um, and I remember that particular class, you know, they did again, they really took pride in their surroundings and, you know, the end of every term, they wanted to tidy the cupboards in the labs because the cupboards were where they kept their equipment and they wanted that equipment to be there and to be all in the right place and all the right bits of it. So Friday afternoon, the last afternoon of term would always be, oh, can we tidy the lab, miss? Can we tidy the lab? So Brilliant. that was... Uh, a very different sort of experience from now where I'm not sure you'd really um, you do that thing quite that quite as often. So it sounds like a, so a good kind of positive experience. I was going to talk to um, Sarah now about because you're you're head of science at the moment um, and at the time of this recording this is lockdown three I think uh, it's been quite a few but it's lockdown three. Um, is there anything uh, you've kind of um, kind of learned from obviously the lockdown teaching is there any things you think within your school or maybe within science that, that, that obviously you have been disrupted like everyone has are there any things you'd like to keep um when you go back to normal school is there any things you've learned um so for Nat uh, sorry natalie sorry natalie um yeah so um in the first lockdown it was we, we were planning lessons where um students could access the material independently we were using lots of um online videos, uh, lessons from places like Oak Academy and STEM Learning's website, things like that. Um, and then building in quizzes and, and other assessment tools to then assess the student's knowledge. But essentially, apart from uh, year 10, they were doing that work independently and it was set out task by task so they could just follow through without sort of the teacher's live help. Um, this lockdown is very different in that we're teaching our uh, full timetables live on Teams. So students are all following the normal timetable and getting a live lesson for every one of those slots. And it's a full live lesson as well. Like we teach um, live for the 45 minutes and then we set a 15 minute independent or reading or assessment task. Um, and so people have really embraced, like the staff have really embraced technology um, and I think they're a lot more confident now with the use of Teams than we're doing it all through Teams. So a lot more confident with that than what they were um, in the first lockdown. There's a lot of, uh, you know, established procedures. And I'm sure that that will be the same for everyone, really, in terms of that sort of skill level with technology and the confidence around using the technology and then trying to mirror as closely what the students will be doing if they were in school so that you know there's not a huge obviously there will be some catch-up needed but that there's not this huge amount of catch-up and they've ended up doing a different curriculum and I know in the first lockdown I was quite worried really around uh, those working scientifically skills and and their development and and they still are a concern and will be something that you know everyone will need to pick up on when we are back in school but now I think we're much more conscious of that and using um, bits of software like Focus to then carry out those practicals or designing investigations where they can still go and build those skills up. I think um, in terms of practice that will stay. We previously ran after school intervention sessions uh, for year 11 and I think using Teams going forward to do some live 
remote based interventions will give us a lot more flexibility um, on almost to do some some of that sort of additional tutoring. So I think that will be an element that does stay. Um, but yeah, if I'm honest, I just want to get back in the classroom now. <laughs> you want to see some 3D people, yeah? That's yeah. Good, good to know. Um, and Sarah, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, so when um, we were in the first lockdown, I was teaching year 12, and I think that I would use some of the technology, as, as Natalie said, in some of the simulations and things like that to enhance their practical work and to give them the opportunity to really focus in on particular skills. So it could be something that they do again, you know, you show them the lab version, but then they go away and they do a simulation, they follow through a simulation or they look at a video in more detail as well. So a bit more of the use of the technology and the flipped learning and also to enhance. And, you know, I think also the other thing is that it's very, very helpful if you've got students who've missed lessons for whatever reason, you know, they've been in an exam or they've been to um, university open day or something like that. Again, you've got far more they're far more used to going away and doing things independently and looking things up online so I think it will be useful for that as well. Okay and in terms of um, simulation Sarah I've kind of uh, uh, being a former teacher as well uh, kind of my heart sings sometimes when I feel about simulations and again kids doing simulations of practicals obviously it's um uh, it's, it's necessity at the moment because of the obviously the, 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 the physical problems we've got, you know, the difficulties. Um, are there any kind of experiments that you would either, you think, kind of lend themselves a bit more to simulations than others? Or when we think about the kind of experiments you do, you know, into, into the 11, 16 kind of age? I think you want to do everything as much as you can, um, sort of face to face. Um, but I mean, when you're doing things and you've got to try and explain how you're setting something up. So if you're looking at a microscope, you know, there are some fabulous simulations that you can show students and you can take them through how to set it up, which makes it a lot easier and perhaps a lot more time efficient than you actually going around and working with each of them. So you can use it for, for those sorts of things as well. So I think that it's how you use it. So I'm you know, I would never suggest that we replace practical with the simulation, but I think it's where it can add value, you can do that, um, particularly if you've got larger classes, um, if you've got perhaps where you've got to split the class, so some are doing practical at a time and some aren't, you might want some of them to work on something else. Um, but but no, I mean, I think again, we'll, you know, it's what are you doing the practical for? What is the purpose of something and how can that simulation add value to rather than replace something? Okay. And Natalie, in your experience in terms of the lockdowns, um, practical is one of those things that is, is very difficult. I did notice um, some things on, online that this, there was quite good kind of physics support in terms of kind of physics -y type experiments you could do um, at home, but it was more difficult with, uh, I kind of think of chemistry and biology. Is it, what, do you ever kind of set kind of practicals that kids did at home um, and had a go that were, were successful? Or was it just something you just thought, well, let's just get back to that when, we, when we're back in school? Um, so we yes and no um we did set a couple but but really carefully and um you know following all the cleeps guidance around what practical work was safe for students to do at home and you know really uh, strong communication with parents around what that practical was any risks involved um but really it was sort of the, using the kinds of equipment you might find at primary level so you're not really any chemicals involved things like that um and and it's more around those underlying 
skills and techniques not not techniques sorry underlying skills rather than um any sort of set practical as such so getting them to think about an investigation and coming up with a hypothesis and then going testing those variables and it you know in summer you could get them out in the garden or get them outside doing different things um we've set when we came back to school in september the way that our uh, bubbles were arranged year 11 were based in the labs and the other year groups didn't have access to the labs so they still couldn't do any practical work so then we were setting um small practicals for them to go and do at home and giving them some equipment to take home to go and do it so if it needed an ingredient which was available at the supermarket for example we'd ask them to get it or we would give the students um, a sample of it to go and use if they couldn't go and get it themselves from the shop so just doing small things to try and um, illustrate some of the concepts that were being taught but really really mindful of Cleep's guidance and what is safe for them to go and do at home yeah okay so kind of yeah it's following following the procedures of course and just yeah, working with the limitations you've got um sarah i was going to say to you um talking about practicals more, more generally um what what would you say are kind of the big principles of practice what really makes a successful practical for students and it might be um a multiple uh, uh, list of things uh, but for you how do you set out your your thoughts before you're maybe doing a practical of a class what what are your thought processes behind before you start that i think the the key thing really is being very clear um about why you're doing the practical so what it is you want the pupils to achieve from doing that practical so are you doing something for them to practice using a particular piece of equipment so for example when i've taught titration um in key stage four chemistry you know first of all you would start off simply by introducing them to the equipment and the the, the sole purpose would be to you know get used to using the different types of pipette filler um, to then pipette the equipment from you know one um, from take up the, the liquid from a beaker and put it into a conical flask just so they got used to that and that would simply be enough for that so I think you need to be very very clear about why you're doing something and what you want the students to achieve and I think you also need to be very clear that they understand that as well I think you know for practical to be purposeful the students need to not be overloaded by having too many things to consider but also they need to see why they're doing it otherwise you know practical can become playtime and uh, no one gets anything out of that then apart from you know perhaps the chance to uh, wander around the lab and uh, interact with your mates yes yeah they're, they're always very keen to do the practical but when you ask them sometimes they're not quite sure why they're doing it so it's always good to kind of point out the purpose of that practical uh, natalie uh, would you like to add something to that yeah, I was just going to say, um, as well as being really clear with um, the purpose of the practical, really carefully thinking about that classroom management as well around, you know, how are you going to set the equipment out? Where are they going to go and move to to get that? How big uh, are your group sizes going to be? Is there enough roles within that practical for each person in the group to do? Because otherwise, that's where you do get people thinking practical work is a bit of a downtime for them to have a bit of a mess. Um, so yeah really that balance between what what is that really clear purpose for doing it and do the students understand it but then also is there enough going on in in what you're wanting to do to keep everyone busy and to give everyone a, a clear role within that 
And if you, uh, when, when I think back to kind of uh, practicals I ran, I think they're very complex processes in terms of actually organising a group of people, uh, children obviously, um, uh, to, you know, have a particular outcome. I was thinking, uh, Natalie, your experience of, have you ever found a, a way, because I don't think I ever corrected when I was a teacher, about what's the best way to distribute equipment for a practical to in, in order there's like an orderly move through the practical and, and students are not just diving in, grabbing every single item they see and then taking it back to, the, back to their table. Is there anything that you kind of do to make sure those kind of things don't happen in your labs? Um, so if we're telling the students, so sometimes you're going to tell the students what equipment they, they're going to need and sometimes you're going to give them some choice around what equipment they use and yeah. ultimately when you give them some choice it's going to be slight Everything. carnage. <laughs> um, but if you're telling them right you need this this and this to go and do this practical then and in both ways really I think just setting out the equipment um, spaced out around the lab so they're not all going to one central point and you're not, you've not got a pile on round an equipment trolley. Um, so I think separate, spreading the equipment out um, in the labs where we've got um, separate practical benches to where they sit to do their classwork so that when they're doing the classwork they're not fiddling with gas taps and sockets. So we have um, equipment underneath each bench in, in sort of group sets. So, the, so for the sort of standard equipment they don't need to go anywhere. They've got their own workstation and they can set up their Bunsen and the tripod and all that without moving anywhere. It's just the sort of chemicals and then specialist equipment for a set uh, a set practical that they'd have to go move for. Um, and also saying to them, allocate one person in your group to go and get this, this and this. And that might be at one side of the room. And then the other person in your group is going to go and get this, this and this. And that's at the other side of the room. So... They're all going getting something, but they're not all going to the same uh, points. I guess um, uh, your technician is a big, big part of that because um, some, sometimes I guess you know you, you. I think all science, all teachers generally like to do things slightly in slightly different ways, and I guess it's about also knowing your technician and being able to have a good communication with your technician to to have the equipment come out in the way that you envisage it being used, which is sometimes difficult, I think, when maybe a technician hasn't done that particularly practical, for example, but they, um, but you have a vision of what it might look like. And it's, sort of, I guess it's communicating in what order things should come in or what trays. And, and, and I always thought sometimes it seems like you're being a bit fussy as a science teacher, I always felt, but it made the practical work better because you knew knew the best order for things to come out or the, or, or the, or the um, uh, you know, which equipment to go next to, to which bits. Sarah, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think also clearing up, because I think, you know, getting out the practical is one thing, but clearing up at the end is something else as well. And I was always very keen that students should actually get equipment out themselves and put things away. But as you said, you do need to manage that movement. And I think it is that, you know, designating, you know, groups to move at a time and individuals within a group and also having those routines embedded so that actually they know that when they're in your lab and you're doing a practical, that's how they, you know, that's how they interact. Uh, Natalie? Yeah, and and ultimately you and the technician are not there to tidy up after them. That that's you know, they're old enough to tidy up after themselves, you're not the parents. So um they you know, if they want to carry on doing practicals, then you know, if you've got those routines and rules around tidying up after themselves, putting things back away, um, you know, once that's established then that makes that a lot easier and ultimately like you say it is around communication with the technician but the first thing that's going to annoy a technician is 
leaving it an absolute state so that they've got to come around and you know make it makes their job more difficult so it's just about everybody doing their bit really isn't it and working together um and giving giving people like the technicians enough time to be able to have a look at what it is you want um you know if you're not sure about what you want practicing it beforehand um you know not doing things on the cuff at the last minute and then not being happy when it's not been brought into a lab in in the way that you wanted it to be so just factoring in time really and getting a bit ahead with with planning and what you're wanting to do thank you um i want to move on to now to making practical seem fresh um one of the challenges i had when i was in schools was, was thinking about some experiments you seem to be doing all the time you seem to be doing um plant cells you seem to be doing chromatography um you seem to be doing like the stretching spring string sorry, I can't say it, the stretching spring experiment at different points during the year you might do it in year seven you might do it in year nine you might do it in year 10 again um so sarah is there any ways that we can kind of think about those types of practicals and make them seem different in some way because sometimes oh, we've done the chromatography that in year eight you know why are we doing it again type thing what got is there any way we should approach those types of practicals that you know you're going to come back to you know, a couple of years down the line. Yeah, so I think it's really important to, again, understand the purpose of the practical, but also think about the progression. So, for example, you take in chromatography there, where well, you might start off and do it with felt pens, but then you might move on to do it with ink, or you might do it with um, um, plants. So, sort of, you know, you might extract something. So, you're actually taking the pigment from the plant and extracting that. You might do different solvents. So, I would be reinforcing to pupils yes, you're familiar with the procedure, the technique, the apparatus, but we're looking at it from a different perspective. Um, so I think there's, there's that side of it, and that's really good because then that links to the application of that knowledge, which we know is um, assessed in the, the exams as well. But I think it's also thinking more creatively about how you're doing things and looking for different examples of different ways of doing things. So, for example, when I've done the disappearing cross experiment, the one with the thiosulfate, um, and you know you can do that and you can vary the temperature you can do that you can vary the concentration and how I've done it sometimes is to actually say to, to pupils well you can change the variables you you're in control of that what I want you to do is to design a method that the cross is going to disappear at 47 seconds so they then spend part of the lesson working on adjusting those variables to achieve a particular endpoint, and then you have, you know, your sort of um, time off thing at the end where we see who gets closest to that particular time. So it's thinking again about, you know, what is it you want to achieve? It's communicating that with your your students, and and again, a lot of that will depend on, you know, the age and the stage of your your students as well and their sort of attainment levels. But I think, you know. It is just thinking differently. It's looking for different variations. It's finding different ways of doing different practicals as well so that they do become more familiar with actually you can change the variables. You can do it a different way. You can use a different starting uh, material. Yeah, I was thinking that um, I think um, the Bake Off model is quite a nice one because you've got this kind of technical challenge kind of aspect, which is like, can we do this to a specific standard to meet a particular criteria using a you know a recipe a method, um, uh, and then obviously you can talk about investigations in um, uh, maybe I say changing variables and being a bit more more creative. That's quite a nice way to, to kind of think of way things. Some things are very technical and strict. Other things have got a bit more um, leeway. Uh, Natalie. Yeah, and I and I'll just add as well to that. It, 
I think especially when the new GCSEs were first introduced, everybody got a little bit bogged down in the core practicals and, oh, these core practicals are in Key Stage 4, we have to do these in Key Stage 3 so that when they get to them in Key Stage 4, they've already done them, they'll know them, they'll do better in the exams on those sorts of questions. And I think it caught um, a few people out in the first year in particular when it's not about the core practical, that that's the vehicle to develop the underlying apparatus and techniques. And actually it's about the skill development and how how are you going to give the opportunity in Key Stage 3 to develop those apparatus and techniques? Um, so, it, you know, you might be doing chromatography. That, that's the example where you, you would do the same practical all the way through. But, you know, when you get to um, making salts, although they'll make salts in Key Stage 3 as well, um, looking at the apparatus and techniques that those practicals are trying to develop and then looking at where are you giving those opportunities in key stage three and then where like Sarah said where's the opportunity to apply uh, that practical to change the variables or put it in a different context so yeah it's just I think being really mindful of those underlying skills is is the key thing really to make sure that you're not just doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah, and I think it's it's finding that challenge. I was thinking, uh, you know, when you make salts or copper sulfate, um, you you could add an opportunity to perhaps do uh, calculating percentage yield, for example, for like a, a high attaining set, perhaps, um, to kind of add that extra layer of complexity. It's just kind of looking for those those bits where you can either decrease the challenge to a certain extent um, and focus on different things, or obviously increase the challenge and maybe adding extra mathematical skills. Um, in your school, Natalie, is there a particular kind of um, list of of, of de obviously the core practicals i'm sure you you do but um are you quite prescriptive in your school about what you, what teachers do and what teachers don't do as a teacher i was i kind of had a free reign in terms of what i chose to do uh, when i was doing my practicals but is your school a bit more uh, prescriptive in that sense or, or is it is a bit of freedom um so there is freedom but what we've what we've done uh, and this is a fairly uh, recent piece of work to be honest but we've looked at those core practicals and the underlying apparatus and techniques and then we've looked back at key stage three at where are the opportunities to develop those um underlying skills and then so we've created a list of practicals where we know that we're going to cover them as part of a scheme of work and we've identified which scheme of work they're part of and they're planned in. So the expectation is that everybody does that practical and that when it's delivered, it's got that focus on those uh, specific skills. But then there's freedom to do additional practicals from there. It's just by having those um, practicals in key stage three that are sort of the non-negotiables and that are the part, parts of the schemes we know then that each student has had those opportunities to develop those skills and they've been mapped out um, based on the focus uh, sorry the score research about purposeful practicals um, and how the focus of the practical needs to have like it needs to have no more than three different objectives so you need to be really clear on you know you're trying to develop conceptual understanding you're trying to develop um knowledge of um working scientifically processes and so on is it about learning bits of equipment and what they're used for so um it's important that the teachers do those practicals with the focus that we've identified but then they can go on and do additional things, change variables and things like that, as long as those initial ones are covered. Um, and then at Key Stage 4, we're, we're looking at opportunities to apply practicals. Again, we've identified in 
specialist teams in subject specialisms where those opportunities are um, and you know if class teachers then come up with other applications then that's absolutely fine um, as long as some application is covered so that students realize it's not just about I've done electrolysis with sodium chloride so that's the only time I'm going to see electrolysis that they've experienced electrolysis with lots of different substances um, yeah so I think a bit of both really a bit of both. okay um, and Sarah you've done a lot of work with STEM can you tell us about the work you've been doing uh, with, with STEM around practicals and what your aims are for um, the work you've been doing yeah so like Natalie said we've um, really thinking getting people first of all thinking about the purpose of the practical and why they're doing things because I think sometimes you can get overwhelmed and I think you know we, we know that that children can only cope with a certain amount of um, instruction at a time um, but also they need to understand why they're doing the practical and how it links to the underlying science and you know making those connections as well so we started off looking at it from that perspective um, obviously within particular subject specialisms we would also look at equipping um, teachers who were perhaps teaching out of their specialism so you might run practical sessions where you're looking at skilling people in chemistry practicals or biology practicals or uh, physics practicals um, particularly for non-specialists who you know maybe it's not their first um, subject so you know they want a little bit more guidance around around that as well um, one of the things I'm also really interested in is, is microscale chemistry, so how we can use microscale chemistry to add value to the curriculum. And what I really love about it is that it fits really nicely, again, in those application of skills, but it really does focus pupils on the underlying science as well. And it's dead easy and dead quick to do. So actually, you know, in the current situation where pupils are sometimes not in labs when they're back in school, but they've not been in labs, you've sometimes been able to carry out microscale practicals, which is good because it's giving them a, a, an opportunity to experience practical work. And then, like Natalie said, it's focusing on those apparatus and techniques and certainly, you know, work that Nat's done at her school is similar to work I've done with teachers where they've looked at, you know, what are the practicals that they have in their key stage three curriculum? What apparatus and techniques do those develop? Are there gaps? How do you map those skills moving forward? And we're not talking about, you know, as Natalie said earlier, we're not talking about bringing the key stage four curriculum into key stage three. What we're looking at is developing that progression of skills. Um, and, and how that fits into what you're teaching. And so the, the, the progression maps you've been developing, is that something that um, uh, are documents that, that teachers can access? Um, what's the best way for them to kind of get, um, get more information about the, these particular projects you've been working on? Um, oh, so, right. sorry, I was just going to say, um, so I think it's really bespoke to each uh, school. I don't okay. think it's not like an off the shelf I mean, if anybody wants to see what what we've done, I'm happy to talk through and, and show people what we've done uh, to give ours as an example. But I think it's not something that you want to be just lifting off the shelf because the curriculum in every school will be different to meet the context of their students. And also the sequencing of the curriculum will be different for different schools. So I think um, 
in terms of what we did and in terms of replicating an approach to sort of make sense of your own curriculum, yeah. we started off by looking at the core practicals and those underlying apparatus and techniques. And we just mapped on a very simple document, sort of three columns, opportunities at key stage three, what the key stage four practical is, and then um, where the application is. And we've got um, those templates, they were developed by STEM Learning. So those templates can can easily be shared and would be applicable to everybody. What we then did was take the score framework, and again, um, you know, that's available to download for everybody. Um, so we, I can send you the link for that so you can make that easily accessible. Yeah, sure. yeah. um, but then we took the score framework, and for each of those practicals we'd identified in Key Stage 3, we then um, just went across ticking which skills we were going to work on and keeping it. It was really difficult to do, to be honest, because there was practicals where you think, well, it's doing this, 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 and this. And then you'd have to train your mind to be, no, rein it in. You've got to pick no more than three. Otherwise, it's going to lose that focus, lose that purpose. So then we started to identify the three sort of areas that we were developing within a practical um, and then looking for any gaps and, and going from there really. So I think at that point it's bespoke to a school, um, you know, in terms of having that thinking around where are those opportunities in key stage three is something that, um, you know, heads of department, if they've not already done that, should be getting the whole team round and that should be done as a faculty so that everyone's got that shared ownership and understanding of how that um, progression in those skills is developing and you know that that's also important in terms of class teachers and how they then approach the practicals you're more likely to get consistency if everyone's got that understanding and they're more likely to be delivered in the way that you've planned for for that sort of strategic progression of the skills but then also when we do get uh, the dreaded visits from Ofsted um, people know sort of you know there's people know the curriculum people have been involved in that uh, writing yeah. of the curriculum and sometimes practical skills are a bit of an afterthought that you know we, we might focus on the sequencing of um, progression in concepts but do we give that same emphasis to the sequencing of those working scientifically skills and I think you know maybe maybe not is our experience of um, you know the courses we've run and the teachers we've spoken to through our roles with STEM learning and this science learning partnerships um, yeah, sorry, I've even forgot the sorry. question now, I've waffled on so long. Sarah, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, I was just going to say that I think, you know, some of this thinking came about, didn't it, Nat, when you were delivering the curriculum um, course. So there was a, there was, we were running a course last summer um, where people were looking at their curriculum and as part of that there was an element of looking at the practical aspect. So, you know, there is sort of structure and framework there as part of um, sessions that, that STEM learning offer. Yeah and I think um, I, I was in a fortunate position really in that uh, week after week I was delivering this course and I knew that uh, within my own setting we were looking at practical work still, we were looking at those skills, we'd um, you know I've, I've been at my current school now for two years and we'd done a lot of work on sequencing of concepts and we'd rewritten the curriculum but I knew that the working scientifically element still wasn't quite right um and and I'd been sort of stewing on it thinking over it thinking how are we going to approach this what's the best way to do and then as you know the more times I'd delivered um some training around curriculum planning 
the more my own thoughts were being shaped and the more sort of reflection on my own school's curriculum was taking place. And then it sort of came from there from a few different um, ideas that I'd sort of pulled together. Um, And it's not to say it's perfect. No, of course. Well, we're all works in progress, as in uh, all things in, uh, in in work and life. Um, I was going to ask both of you, actually. I was going to talk to you, ask you about some some tips and recommendations. So uh, I'm going to limit you to, th- to three each, I think, um, for the first one. So the first one I'd, I wanted to ask um, is, uh, so we'll start with Sarah. Um, can you give me three web, web resources that you would really recommend um, teachers check out if they've not even looked at them before, if, they've, if they're a bit busy? What, where would you go first for your top three practical-based science resources? Oh, that's, um, that, that's a tricky one. I mean, there are so many and also different aspects of different things. So I think um, as I'm a chemistry teacher, um, I often start off with Learn Chemistry. So, you know, the RSC site. Um, and I also think their, their education in chemistry resources are really good because they are largely written by practicing teachers who um, um, have, have actually trialled things in the classroom so they'll contain activity sheets and so on and so forth. So that, that would be one or two. Natalie's holding her fingers up at me counting for me. So that would be two things. Um, I mean, STEM Learning have a massive um, w- uh, amount of resources on the website. I think, you know, sometimes it's just picking through those resources. But recently they've launched a STEM community page and that's really helpful because, again, you can put a question on there and there are different forums. So there's an 11 to 19 um, section. There's also a technician section and it's really helpful, particularly for inexperienced teachers um, or people perhaps working more in isolation. So it's, it's really come into its own at the moment where we've not been able to have those face to face conversations. But you can put a question up there about, you know, has anyone got any suggestions on how you would do this? And you'll get feedback from the community. I think I don't know if you've stolen all the good ones there, but Natalie, have you got any ones to add to that? Some some online resources. That's why I was holding my fingers up to her. So she started thinking, oh, don't don't nick them all. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I think, um, so there's a nice uh, physics site, Practical Physics and um, the IOP, uh, Spark IOP site. Um, They're quite nice because they've got um, teaching ideas for the different physics concepts. Uh, It flags where misconceptions um, usually arise and how to sort of navigate those and, and, you know, try and avoid them, as well as then um, the sort of, ideas for practical work. I think um, the Nuffield site, um, you know, and certainly for the application of practicals, um, you know, it's a, it's a good good site to gain some other ideas around the core practicals, as is um, the, the old AQA um, IGCSE material. There's some bits in there that you can use to help with uh, that was where the carrot and osmosis question came from a few years ago um i think uh score framework uh, is a web-based resource and I, I think you know definitely if anyone's listening to this podcast and thinking practical work is something that they need to look at then i would definitely go and read that score research um i don't know if sarah's got uh, any more she wanted to chip in i cut her off so that i didn't run out of any <laughs> 
I think I think those are the, the the key ones. I would say. I mean, there's obviously SAPs, which are really good for biology. There's CLEEPS if you're looking for guidance on what you shouldn't shouldn't be doing. Um, you know, particularly health and safety. Um, Gatsby have done a lot of work on the importance of practical work as well. So there's absolutely loads of um, support out there. Lots of good stuff. Lots of things to check out. I was wondering, um, just kind of uh, winding up the interview now, but um, what is you obviously did a lot of analysis of practical, so I'll ask you separately. But um, uh, what, in your mind, Sarah, is that is the is the one practical that rules them all in terms of hitting all the skill boxes? And you could you could turn this practical if you order this practical every month, you could still something get something new out of it. What, is there any that spring to mind that you think, yeah, this is a great one? I could do this, this, and this with it. Um, I could repeat it ten times, and I'd still find something new to do with it. Oh, that's a that's a tricky one because there is just so much practical work, and I think it's more the way in which you do it. So, you know, I think it's those um, the the different applications. As I say, you know, rate of reaction. Um, I think is something that it can be done in a very boring way. In that, you know, we're all familiar with marble chips of different sizes. Although that makes a really good discussion actually about the different sizes of the marble chips and and things like that. But you know, there are so many different variations. Um, so you can use um, rhubarb to show surface area. Um, you know, you can use um, glow sticks to look at the effect of temperature on a rate of reaction. Um, so there's lots and lots of different ways, as I mentioned, particularly the thiosulfate, you know, you can just turn things around and do things differently. So I think it's more having that um, different attitude towards things rather than always doing, you know, the, the same things. It's, it's you know, what's my class like how have i done this how can i achieve it you know i i have quite a low boredom threshold so i think you know for me actually i don't want to do the same thing the same ways although i do love a fl good flame test i never tire of flame tests so that that i suppose is the one that you know i love to piece that's, in. The, one, that's the one you love to do and uh natalie is there any kind of practicals that that kind of um I guess, like Sarah said, one you like to do and maybe one that, that hits lots of boxes in terms of in, involving loads of skills that you can really uh, help the students with. Um, so <laughs> Sarah and I had a conversation before this um, podcast around what, what is our favourite practical? And I was saying, I find this really difficult to pin down. I don't even know if I've if I've got a favourite practical because it for me, I think um, the practicals that I enjoy the most are the ones where kids get excited and it can be something really simple um depending and it depends on your class as well doesn't it but it could be something really simple like making little paper helicopters and investigating surface area and they all get excited because they're going to go and drop it off uh off the stairs and um or you know doing things like our, you know when we go into primary schools and we do things with like little balloon rockets and we make um sort of rope like a rope track between two clamp stands across the sports hall and then they've got a pop bottle and they put a little balloon rocket on it and it's around the difference in the um, amount of air they put in the balloon and the distance it travels but then as it shoots off it makes that screaming sound so they love it because it makes a noise and it's quite easy for them uh, to do so I think the practicals were the sort of there's not a huge cognitive load to it but then they see um, you know they it gets them excited it gets that little uh, wow factor I think it comes from engagement as well doesn't it if you're just telling someone 
what to do and they're just following instructions and doing it and there's not really that thought in it then it doesn't really matter what what practical <clears throat> it is you've not really got that buy-in but then if if they have bought into it and they've had to do some thinking around it I think it could be something really simple you don't need any sort of fancy equipment to do anything um and you know things like uh, the whoosh bottle or group one metals in water they're they're practicals that kids remember and and they enjoy doing because there is a bit of a wow factor so I think they definitely have their place for for engaging students um but you know it's not always bang is it so no I think that um I think what surprised me um a couple of years ago when I was, was teaching a class and this is when mo obviously when mobile phones were around but uh, you may well know the experiment where you do you get like a 2p coin and you add droplets of water to it to measure how long it takes for the, the droplets to spill over and the kind of factors you can change and it always amazed me that actually that to me is that seemed like almost uh, seems like a, in a sense a dull, dull experiment uh, but the kids absolutely love to love to do it and love to find out what the reason was and it kind of a, an element of surprise so um, sometimes it is difficult to judge until you, until you do them. But uh, even the, as you say, the, the, the more straightforward, the helicopters, um, you know, the, uh, the, the kind of the whoosh bot bottle things, are obviously quite um, exciting. But some simple experiments can do a really good job at uh, really engaging students. And I think you've got to you've literally got to experiment. And I think that's a good good point to end end on. So thank you very much for joining me today on the View from the Lab podcast. Um, and uh, what I'll do is I will put in all your uh, links in, in the show notes so people can find out more um, from the things you've suggested. So thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you for joining me on this View from the Lab podcast. I hope you found our discussion interesting and informative. If you acquire any of the resources Sarah and Natalie mentioned in the podcast, please have a look at the show notes of this episode. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you on the next one.